you doing? Alright, nice, nice to meet you, buddy. We will take you to the car, just get through okay? Yeah, what a drive. Yeah, oh, yeah, well, thanks for coming. Jeez. <laughs> what a, what a was the, experience. Was the flight smooth? You know, it was. I loved it because, um, you know, you fly American and all those other airlines, like when I went to Kenya and when I went to Cuba, and, you know, you paid two, three thousand dollars. Yeah. This WestJet, five hundred bucks. That's, I've never heard of it so cheap. And they give you all the alcohol you could drink for free. <laughs> when have you ever seen that, brother? Come on. Now. <laughs> so how's everything? Yeah, it's going good. How are you feeling energy-wise? Did you, you have know, you rested? I'm I'm good. It's just like right now it's three o'clock in the morning. Yeah, that's what we were calculating on the but way I'm here. But I'm good, brother. I just. Uh, just a long trip. How long was the flight? Well, it was a six-hour layover in Canada, oh. and then about ten hours and forty minutes. And then they were running late, so. But uh, it was great. It was cool. You know, it's it's nice to be here. It's nice to be here. I think we got to go to the car park machine first. So it's on floor zero. How's the weather difference then? You're going to feel that in a bit. It's 104 degrees in LA. It's 104 degrees in LA. I thought it was warm. It was warm? I thought it was warm. I didn't think that was like, okay, I'm going to buy it as I go. While Francis was here, it was warm. You know, I, I, I'll tell you, how about that other cat that you had on there? That Abbott guy, was he here too? Abbott. Abbott, yeah, he lives in England now. Oh, okay, cool, cool. Yeah, he so I'm wondering how you're getting these people in the, he, in the studio. He, he lives on the south coast okay. of England, yeah. yeah. Well, so much for me and, uh, and Zoom, Zoom my ass. He was like, my story's not going to go on Zoom. Yeah, I'm better than I'm Zoom. I'm going to fly my ass over there. <laughs> you, know what's, you know what's bizarre is I didn't, I didn't know who you were till like yesterday. No, watch this. I didn't know who you were. I contacted you because of what? I was trying to send word to Michael Thompson yes. to give me a call. Yeah, yeah. And then I saw the interview and I'm like... And we started conversing. Yeah. And then my 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 wife tells me, you know, you just got to go there. You, you got to get this done. Yeah. And there we are. Brought you, brought you a present. I got a present for you. Oh, thank you. Right, we need to go up now to level five. So is it here? I'll follow you, this is your bed. Was it round, round there, wasn't it? There's no lifts here as well? Oh yeah, I'm oh, sorry for you. So it's the first time in England? Oh no, I was here in 73 and 75. Okay. When uh, we used to have Piccadilly Square, I don't know if they still got it, but we used to have yeah. the, the Playboy Club, you have now. My uncle used to be a croupier. Yeah? Out there, yeah. Oh, cool, cool. In the 80s and 90s. Claremont Club, have you heard of that one? Claremont and uh, I think there's what. I was a youngster, so I don't appreciate it. Like, I'm gonna just. Uh, yeah. I'm already looking at Paris for a week and Sicily, Catania. Wow. And to go smoke a bowl in Amsterdam. Mm -hmm. Sounds it. good. Forty years. You got to see the world now and enjoy yourself. Well, I did Kenya. Kenya. But then what happened at the Hotel Doucette? 
What are the odds of that? Crazy. I thought it was a movie. It was they were tired. Yeah, it was the seventeenth of July, three years ago. Wow. And when they said all Brits go in the chow hall and all Americans go in the gymnasium, I said, No, I'm gonna stay here in the room. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's more relaxing. It got too hot, I think. Because we don't have AC. I love this. This is beautiful weather right here. Yeah, we have a heat wave in LA right now that's unseen. 115 in the desert. Oh, it's Arizona temperature. Yeah, 115. It's 105 in Imperial Valley. Where I live, it's going to be 103 today. Wow. I, like, I got out just in the nick of time. Yeah, it's <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm proud of you. Oh, you no, too, man. Hey, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm proud of you. You know, uh, money don't make a man, but uh, when a man has a good heart, it's doing what you're doing. You know, that's, that's where it's at. Man. Everything we do, we try and do it with love and purity. That's all you got to do the day. Yeah. You know? There's too much hate in the world. You know, I love Charles Manson. Charlie didn't kill anybody. People need to understand that. He was 20 miles away from it. Tex Watson said, hey, I'm going to go. And he goes, hey, go ahead. I'm having an orgy on over here. I don't care what you do. Tex Watson was the killer, not Charlie. Not heard this side of the story. Yeah, Charlie's not. Charlie's a hundred pounds soaking wet. He, 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 uh, a nine-year-old could beat Charlie's ass. <laughs> and Charlie's a, fa a fraud. He's a he's a facade. He, they made him into that. He, he would do an interview and he'd come by my cell and he'd look at me and he'd go, "Showtime!" And he'd go out there and go crazy. And people ate it up. I do. I I do his mail for him. Me and Michael. I do his mail. We stole the central file and sold it online. I used to have uh, my attorneys mailing eight by tens of them. And I'll tell you, people were paying us for his hair. So I go to the barber shop, pick up a bag of hair, and would set it out in letters. And for ten dollars, they get a strand of Charlie's hair. And a lot of it was from over here. He had a he, there's a motorcycle club here in England, Manson. There's a motorcycle club from England. That's Charles Manson. Yeah. Wow. What but, about Sirhan Sirhan? But did you oh, speak to him a lot? Listen, the man that's sitting here in front of you was schooled by two people. Michael Thompson and Sirhan Sirhan. Michael Thompson reviewed my legal work that I would put in to correct my spelling with the computer he had. He was the only prisoner in the system that had a printer in a cell. And Sirhan would give me a word every day out of the dictionary reciprocal, fundamental, and every yeah. morning he'd school me on what it meant and what would the, it, it was just, you know, a, another man that didn't speak. If he said one word a day, it was a big thing. Did you, so you know about the assassination of Bobby Kennedy? Yes, did he, well. did he, um, he, did he know what happened to him in the months leading up to the assassination? Because they, they say if he was brainwashed, he had to have been taken away from his family for so much time. That, Does he that, remember that period? No, no, that isn't what... You know, his, his story is... 
he left an abusive family, came here, and, you know, they, the, the gun, the, the, there was too many shots. I mean, he even has the family members of the Kennedy now going to the pro board trying to get him out because yeah. new evidence has come up. But it's beyond my uh, my my knowledge right now to, to, to say something I don't know. So yeah. all I know is that... Uh, Does he feel he was um, part of a plot? You know, he never told me. He never spoke about it. Right. He never spoke about it. Yeah. But uh, like I say, every every day he he tried to enhance my vocabulary and make me a better person. So yeah. I can't say anything bad about him. Yeah. But, you know, because yeah, I looked into the MK Ultra thing, and they they um, reckon that he was taken away from his family, and it took a couple of months to program him. Well, yeah, you know, that's speculation. Yeah. You, know, you, you could think any, you know... They say that about Charles Manson as well, don't no, they? That Charlie, he Charlie's, just a, Charlie's just a Southern California hippie that just got caught up in the media. That's that's all Charlie was. Yeah. Charlie wasn't that. He was out in the Spawn Ranch, and uh, he had five, ten girls, and, and all he was doing was getting high and fucking. That's all Charlie wanted to do, get high and fuck. Tex Watson was the evil mind, yeah. not Charlie. Charlie, like I said, if you would if you would have spent ten minutes with Charlie, you'd be laughing your ass off. Yeah. Charlie was just a uh, he was the guy that you bring to the party and just a character. Yeah, yeah, Charlie was just a character, yeah. man. There wasn't a bad bone in Charlie, man. I, rest in peace. But uh, yeah, you That's... have to understand. I've known these men since I was eighteen. So for twenty years, wow. I woke up every day with these men and went to sleep, had dinner with them. But, um, yeah, we used to have a hellified poker game with Charles Manson, Juan Corona, Michael Thompson, and Sirhan. Tell me that ain't a poker uh, game. Wow. Huh? Who used to win? Uh, <laughs> everybody pretty much yeah. did, because we were, after 20 years of playing poker, we were all sharks yeah, at it. Pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's been a hell of a journey. It's been a hell of a journey. I still laugh when people ask me my cell number. I tell them cell block six. <laughs> get it? CP6. No, when they say, what's your cell number? They mean phone. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That threw me off. What's your so, cell number? Cell block six. So here, we don't say cell phone. We say mobile phone. Oh, mobile. Okay. Yes. Oh, California cell number. What's your cell? Yeah. <laughs> it's just your cell number, yeah. But yeah, it's, it's a blessing, you know. You know, and I'm here not just only for them being a part of my life, but for me taking the time to get educated to receive my associates my bachelors to put myself in law school find the way to get out find that writ of error quorum novus that hasn't been used since 1942 you know if you ever get a chance to google it google writ of error quorum novus it's so obscure i'll, I'll, I'll never forget brother it was my birthday may 4th and it was 2002 and the attorneys were coming to visit me to represent me for the parole board. And they said, we're here to represent you. And I said, well, I just filed a writ of error form notice. And these two Harvard attorneys that are donating their time, they looked at each other and looked at me and said, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> and if anybody gets a chance, you... Google Red Air Quorum Novus is so obscure, it hasn't been used since the 40s. How did you dig that up? Well, see, every day, every day, I would go to the law library, and I'd come back with 
stacks of books under my arm, my beanie rolled up, a big cigar. And all the guys, all the lifers would be playing poker saying, hey, what are you doing now? I go, I'm going home, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And about a year into it, about three o'clock in the morning, I found it. Rid of error quorum nobis. At any time during your sentence, if an error was made that isn't a fault of the plaintiff or the defendant, you can file back to the original sentencing court for a modification of sentence. And that's what I did. And it was denied over 50 times because there's no limit to how many times you could file it. So what I would do is all the girls would send me naked pictures and I'd make copies of the naked pictures and I'd sell them for stamps so I could pay the postage to keep fighting for my life. Wow. And that's what I did. I sold porno pictures and, and did immigration cases. I did a lot of immigration cases, a lot of divorces. And that's how I made my money surviving there by doing law work. When that writ went through, did it, it was, didn't you abbreviate it from previous filings? Um, no, what I did was see. This is so. This is so. This is what makes the writ such a phenomenal legal tool, because a writ of error quorum nobis, N-O-B-I-S. Once it's denied, it turns into a writ of error quorum vobis, V-O-B-I-S, which makes it straight federal. So now you bypass the state. Now you're in the federal courts. And Judge Richard Camby from Phoenix, Arizona, Ninth Circuit, he was the one who granted it, sent back, ordered them to release me. They refused to release me. I had to file again. Because what happened when I went back, brother, this is really bizarre. When I went back, they sentenced me to 25 to life again, but they didn't give me credit for the 30 years I had served. Yeah, I read that. that so was here I was with a V number. Like a new number and everything? A new number, and I wasn't going to the Pro Bowl until 2041. And I was like, no, and nobody in there wanted to hear about it. But let me tell you, brother, this is my, my wife, she always tells me this. So one day it's raining, and they call me to the warden's office, and I'm thinking, wow, my mom and dad are dead, so it can't be that. So, you know, what could it be? And it was some Mexican guy, and he sat me down, and he had a young kid in there. He goes, you remember me? I go, no. He goes, the year was 1986, Tracy Prison. You told me to take off my badge and come in the cell. See that scar on my head? I go, oh, my God. And he told his son, I've been telling my son about you since he was a kid, that I got knocked out by the great Joey Torres. <laughs> and... He, that man, his name was Warden Solis, he had my counselor say, contact the district attorney, this is wrong. So they changed my V number, they gave me credit, made me eligible for parole, and then henceforth, I had to fight again. And that's how I had the state order the parole board to show cause why I shouldn't be released. Those parole people had it in for you, didn't they? Especially the head. Yeah, but what happened afterwards? What happened afterwards is that the governor, Governor Jerry Brown, he came in, brother, and he took all those guys, those board members, and fired them. And he put in all ex CDC captains, lieutenants. So when I went in there, he goes, "Hey, I knew I was good." When he said he called me boxer, he goes, "Hey, good news, boxer, you're going home. Bad news is that the governor has 90 days to either grant it or deny it." So for 90 days, my asshole was puckered. Woo! And when he granted it, I cried like a little girl. Man, man that was amazing, brother. Amazing.
amazing to get out after all those years, you know? Yeah. Freedom is a beautiful thing. People don't understand it until you lose it. Four, I mean, 40 years, that's just mind-boggling. Yeah, figure, you know, that's why I said I've known Charlie, I've known Michael, I've known Sirhan since I was a kid. A kid. Yeah. It was saving the life of a correctional officer being raped. I mean, come on, tell me that won't change your life. What man could stand by and watch two black guys beat her in the face and suck her titties? Who, you know, what, do you guys think you could watch that? Come on, yeah, man. Stuck him. man. I sure wish I had the video for that beatdown I put on him. You would have loved that one. Wow. But yeah, brother, it's, it is what it is. So this is the first on our channel. Joey has just basically just jumped on a flight and come from LA. Like, he's only known me for a couple of days. And we had some great conversations on the phone that led to this. Joey has served 40 years in the California prison system. Well, some of it was out of state as well, but 40 year sentence. And he served a lot of that with Michael Thompson, Saran Saran, Charles Manson. This whole thing came about because he saw the Mike Thompson interview and he contacted me and we started chatting. And the scope of his story, though, so his book is Bamboozled. And it starts with a young lad growing up in the hood in Cali, L.A., um, 18th Street Gang is a big part of his life and boxing gangs, fights, and there's a quote which is still going on to this day, it's where are you from? So if you're from the wrong part and you're running you know, in the wrong, the wrong area or the wrong guys come up to you, it's on site right away. Then Joey ends up, he has a boxing manager and the boxing manager gets murdered. Joey gets sentenced to five years to the youth authority as a young person, but there is an illegal resentencing where he receives 25 to life. He saves a female prison guard from getting sexually assaulted. He does get out because he studies the law and he finds this obscure method of getting out, but they put him back in. And when were you actually released? I served another 10 years. I was released on uh, the 15th of December, 2015. It must be mind-blowing for people that you've gone through this. So out of that 40 years then... I know we're going to get to your whole backstory soon and start it, but I think it will be quite gripping for the public. If you just talked a bit about this prison that you were in with Mike Thompson and Saran Saran and Charlie Manson, how long were you having lunch with those guys for? 20 years. 20 years. 20 years. I've known Charlie and I've known uh, Juan and Sirhan since I was 18. And that was 19... 94, so you figure 20, 25 years I've known. I've known Charlie since I was a kid. I've known uh, Sirhan. Sirhan, as I told you earlier, Sirhan was my uh, my mentor. You know, he told me that I, I was intelligent and I should stay away from the gangs and start educating myself. And then Michael Thompson, the briefs that I would do, Michael Thompson had a printer and he would correct my spelling and and give me insight into how to attack the system in a fundamental way that will get the attention of the courts. And that all came from Michael Thompson and, and Sirhan. 
So people hearing these stories like Mike Thompson's in the comments, they say, there's no way prison could ever have been like that, that violent. So I'm just going to read something from The Independent, which is a newspaper, a prestigious newspaper in the UK, one of the prisons you were at. And Thompson touched on this as well. So the headline is, Staged Fight, Betting Guards, Gunfire and Death for the Gladiators. So violent inmates at California's top max security jail prison were purred off in staged fight as guards bet on the outcomes. This was reported by the LA Times in 1996 as well. That's, that's, that's weird. That's... In, in some cases, prisoners who refused to stop fighting were shot dead. Shot dead by the guards. This is documented. In a ritual that became known as Gladiator Days, known enemies at Corcoran State Prison were released from their cells and purred off like fighting cocks in empty prison yards. So were you forced to participate in that, Joey? I fought three times. And then uh, after I made the lieutenant some money, Lieutenant Riggs, um, he made me the, the office clerk. And right when you were saying that, I just had a flashback. It was about the size of a football field from the captain's office to the housing unit. And when I would get off work, or they knew something was happening, me and the lieutenant and the nurse and the doctor and an ambulance would slowly go across the yard. And before we even got to the unit, they would, you would hear the gunfire. They, were, they knew ahead of time that they were going to kill somebody. Think of that. You think that that would happen, the ambulance would come and the office would come after the shot. But before we got to the building, they would kill somebody. That's when they killed Tate. That is cold, man. And there was a guy in here who was an inmate who was killed that you knew. Let me just keep going down this article. Um, Warden, it was done under Warden George Smith. Yeah, George Smith. It was dubbed Mushroom George. Yeah, he had a mushroom nose because he drank so much his nose looked like Rudolph. <laughs> yeah, the John Wayne uh, uh, picture in his office. Yep, yep. He, was, he used to say there's a new sheriff in town. Over eight years, seven were shot dead, five in the 18 months after Smith took over. More than 50 were wounded, more than in any other prison. Gunfire rang out every day and yep. shootings were covered up. Yep, yes they were. The disclosures in the prison built in California's San Joaquin Valley come against a drumbeat of demands for tougher treatment of prisoners. Guards and inmates describe scenes in which prison officers gathered in control booths overlooking cramped exercise yards in advance of the fights, which were sometimes delayed so that female guards and secretaries could be present. Yeah, they would, they'd all go there for lunch and they'd put two guys out on the yard to fight and they'd bet on who they think is going to win. And if they didn't win, they'd shoot them. The officers were armed with gas guns that fired wooden blocks and rifles. Yep, yep yes, sir, yes, sir. So they purred off members of rival black and Latino gangs? That's what they would do, north-south, whites, blacks, and they'd bet on them. So who were the gangs that were dominant in the prison system in California back in that year? Still are. Uh, that'd be the south side, that'd be the Southsiders and the Aryan Brotherhood. And now they have a clique called the Pesetas, which are the PCs, guys. They have their own gang now. So it was, it's usually just, like I said, for me it was different, Sean, because I was a lifer. And I don't know if you know this, but when you're a lifer, it's a whole different ballgame. 
because nobody's going to fuck with a lifer because you're doing life. I have no reason not to kill you and they can't give me any more time. So lifers didn't go through as much as other inmates went through. Lifers showered together. Lifers knew. I would ask my friend, how's your daughter? And he'd say, Joey, she graduated college. And I'd remember a little five-year-old in the visiting room. So when you're a lifer, you spend more time with your fellow lifers, like Sirhan, Juan, Michael, you know, Shorty Shrek and Ghost, Lyle Hood. We'd play poker all day, and that was our life. So this article references Preston Tate. Who was he and what happened to him? Preston was a good kid from L.A., and they just uh, they set him up. They set him up. So he had one of these fights? He was a good fighter, but uh, he lost. And that made a lot of the, um, the guards got exposed after this killing, did they? 60 Minutes came in. 60 Minutes did a, a big investigation. The FBI came to the prison. Um, they just ran roughshod because uh, the warden was running a prison without... No, he had no one to answer to. He would tell Sacramento, I'm not listening to you. This is my prison. So if he wanted you dead, you were dead. Who were the sharks? They were... The sharks were... the. I don't know what sharks you're talking about. A group about. of officers known as the Sharks. Oh, that was their gang. I thought you, we call we call the shower <laughs> molester sharks because they're always in the shower looking at. We call them shower sharks. <laughs> shower sharks. They're always looking for your dick in the shower. <laughs> so I thought you meant those shower sharks. No, the uh, the Corcoran officers had tattoos of sharks, and they had their own gang. Corcoran cops had their own gang. I mean, I'm sure Mike will tell you about the the Telus guy. Uh, Tomas, he was an officer in the building, and Michael told me to put paperwork on him because every time he would come in, he would lock me on the tier, my handcuff on the rail, and leave me there the whole shift. And that's why I, I say so much about Michael because I didn't know how to litigate at the time. And uh, Mr. Thompson, Michael showed me how to do it properly. And when I needed help with arranging it in a, in, in, so it could be unheard and understood... Then I'd take it to Sirhan, and Sirhan would say, no, you spelled this wrong, got to bring this over here. So when a busload of new arrivals came, how did the Sharks receive them? Just looking as, who's the next gladiator? Who's their next going to make some money? Because this was a betting thing. You'd have officers coming on lunch because the prison's locked down. So you'd have officers coming from other buildings at lunchtime. And we would be in our cells watching them up there and just waiting for the gunfire. There'd be like four girls up there. They'd be eating pizzas, the cuss, and then they'd let one in from one side. And it's the same thing as here as you have. It'd be them up here looking down. And they'd say, stop. And if you didn't stop, they'd shoot them. And that's why I say it's so ridiculous because I got off work at 2 o'clock every day in the office. And I'd see them stroll across. When you see an ambulance go somewhere before the gunfire, come on. <laughs> that's, that's, you can't tip a hat no more than that. They even let Charlie's door open once. They wanted Charlie fucked up. So they left Charlie's door open. Why did they want him fucked up? Because Charlie, Charlie's Charlie. Charlie get on a jump on the table and go crazy and tell the cops where to go. And so they opened the gate for him to come out so he'd get attacked. And you've got a completely different perspective of Charles Manson from what the media have portrayed him. Well, any, anybody worth their salt that, that, that you know, uh, 
would to look into it would understand that the murders transpired in Los Angeles and he was in Santa Susana at the ranch with his girls having orgies. He told me, he said, Joey, I was having orgies with 10 girls doing meth, doing at that time LSD. And Tex came and said, hey, I'm going to go, you get, go do it. I don't give a shit. They say if that crime transpired now, they, Charlie wouldn't have been arrested because it's, it, it, it's all about you telling me to do... It's hearsay. That's a hearsay case. So when you say crime, you're on about the Tate. The Tate LaBianca. He was a whole city away. But yet, Tex said Charlie told him to do it. And Bugliosi, the district attorney, it was Vietnam going on. They wanted to take their eyes off of Vietnam. And they made Charlie... And Charlie was the greatest patsy of them all. Because he wanted to be an artist. He wanted to be a singer. He had relationships with the Beach Boys. He had relationships with... He, went, he was, a, you know, an up-and-coming artist. And he, he'd grow this cult with these girls. He was a major pimp, a major player. But he was never a killer. Charlie weighs 100 bucks soaking wet, and uh, any, a girl could whip Charlie's ass. Charlie was just the right person at the right time. And, you know, I remember he would go to do... Charlie, you're doing NBC... And it come out of his cell, and it come to me, and it go, "How do I look?" And it go, "Showtime." And that was Charlie. But Charlie was a good guy. He'd give you the shirt off his back. So when he was pulling all these faces and going saying "Hell to Skeleton," all, that was all an act, was it? That's yeah, that was all an act. He'd he'd get bags of mail every day. I I I received. I did, I responded to all his mail, and he was loved because they loved him for that. But they didn't understand that. He was the biggest farce there was. And was an industry created around his her? Excuse me? Selling his her? Oh, we would take the bags of hair out of the barber shop because people wanted locks of his hair. And we'd send him to... I remember writing to England many times and sending... He, he, mostly all his fans were from England. All the mail I received were from England because I remember the envelopes had red, green, red going all the way around the end. You don't get that in L.A. Those are via airmail ones. <laughs> and they were from England. And you said there was a guy called the Booty Bandit. Or... The Booty Bandit was uh, the same thing as uh, when they had the stage fights. If you fucked up in there, they had a big old guy they called the Booty Bandit. And it, that guards would open your door and he'd go in and fuck you in the ass. Yeah, he's he was notorious. Maybe you should put Corker and Booty Band and see what pops up on that. But yeah, the Booty Band was a, he's a legend. <laughs> so this is just the introduction to Joey's story. We've not even started yet. I forgot to mention he's kind of got this um, ability, this unique ability to create an enterprise and a charity to help young people with the top sports cars, sports stars in the country, uh, Daryl Strawberry, your friends with Mike Tyson, and he would phone them from prison and get them to go to these events and organise these deals with them, sending them to Japan, around the world. You'd get your piece. But the bottom line was, quite quickly after you were apprehended, you were on a mission to keep the young kids away from drugs. What, your boxers against drugs? I found it bad, boxers against drugs, in 1986. After saving the officer's life, I was sent out of state. 
I was sent to uh, Gene, Nevada. And I remembered Eric Davis, a great ball player, Cincinnati Reds, Los Angeles Dodger, and Daryl Strawberry, whose mother was so great to me. I grew up with her. I grew up with the family. And I contacted them from prison. And uh, they would do anything for me. But they let other players know, like Deion Sanders. And so the word got out that sometimes during the ball game, they'd hit a ball and end up at first base. And the conversation was, how's Joey doing? So I started representing athletes because their agents would only focus on the contract to play, not to get them endorsements. So the players would give me permission. I would contact Reebok, Nike, and say, hey, I'm Joey Torres, the ex-champ. I represent Emmett Smith. I represent Daryl Strawberry. And I would negotiate deals and then turn it over to the player for a finder's fee, all from prison. And another huge theme of your story is the mafia, your connection to the Gambinos. Um, as I was speaking to you in recent days, I told you I just got back from a tour with Michael Francis, and you were aware you had some association with those guys as well? Well, I grew up, my brother Luigi, my, my mother Sicilian, my mother, uh, my mother married, my mother did something in 1940 that no Sicilian girl did. She married a Puerto Rican. So the uncle said, you go or you die. So we moved to California. But we stood in New York every year we visited. My uncle Frank Genovese, my, my mother's uh, Conchetta Gifrida. They have that Gifrida Anisette company in Sicily. So I came up in that environment. I, uh, I remember 1973 being 13 years old. Me and my brother driving to Chino Prison to pick up Jimmy the Weasel Frediani who took me straight to the gym with Ray Giarusso and Billy Bonanno and he's trying to show me how to throw a left hook. So that was, and, and when I became 15, 16 in the Golden Gloves, if they needed somebody taken care of, that sent me to uh, baptize them, as we call it. And what's your thoughts on Michael Francis? Uh, salt of the earth, straight shooter. Um, I know him through Cha-Cha. I know he... I don't drop names, but he's, he's uh, you know, it is what it is. It is what it is. He's a good man. He, everything that he says is truthful and honest. He knows where the bodies are buried. So, uh, but he's, he's, he's a man among men. So, pa Panorama City? Panorama City. What was that like? Um, you know, it, it was a good life. It's just, uh, I was too big for it. I was too violent. But know? when did it start? The violence? Yeah, when did you start getting into trouble? What, what age? 12, 13. What kind of trouble was that? I would fight. I'd love to fight. I wanted to be the best fighter. And I fought at the ups and downs. It was uh, back in the 70s, everybody was skateboarding back in California. So we'd go to an empty pool, and whoever came out of the empty pool was a winner. And so my sister would take me, the family would come, and they'd bet, and then I'd, I'd take on all comers. At that time, I was training with one of the greatest of all time, Benny the Jet Yukidas, the world full contact karate champion, and his sister Lily and Blinky. And uh, we trained every day. We ran every morning. We trained. I taught a beginner's class on Saturdays for karate, and we toured around the world fighting. So when you're 15, 16 years old and you're going to school, uh, not too many kids could deal with you. 
So when you first met the karate guy, is this the guy that you said to him, you're a boxer and you'd beat up any karate guy? Yeah, I learned the, I learned the hard way. <laughs> what happened? Because uh, he, he told me he fought for money, so I went out and stole a bunch of eight tracks and stole a bunch of money, and, and uh, we put it up, and I think he knocked me out in maybe the first minute with a spinning back kick, his trademark. But uh, we were unboundable friends after that. And uh, my sister baptized his daughter, and I would eat there. His mother was a wrestler in Mexico. They're five brothers. Like I said, again, if you look it up online, he's a legend. Anyone that knows martial arts knows who Benny Yukidas is. If you watch the movie um, Roadhouse with Patrick Swayze, Benny's the choreographer. So Benny's uh, he's legendary. And what about siblings then, growing up with brothers and sisters? My brother was in prison in Arizona in Florence Penitentiary. My brother got arrested with a gas tanker full of marijuana. And he ended up in Florence. Um, my, my brother, uh, Morrow, I didn't know too much because I was always in jail. I was always in juvenile hall. I started going to juvenile hall in 1972 when I was 12 for runaway. So my life was spent on the streets because I loved the streets. I loved walking the streets because the streets had no rules. What about school and studies? Never graduated. Never graduated. It took me to go to prison with a life sentence to, read, to obtain my associate and my bachelor's degree. And how did you get introduced to drugs? Well, I, my manager... Well, back then in the 70s, fighters... I saw fighters... Alexis Arguello, I saw so many fighters that were doing cocaine and partying, and it just became a thing where on the weekends, during the week we would train like a beast, but on the weekends I'd hit my cavassier and a couple lines of cocaine, and it was disco. At that time it was Donna Summer, and everybody was disco ducking it. <laughs> and you had some female friends back then, but one of them got killed by a serial killer. That's... Um... That'll stay with me forever. Who was the killer? Um, Klein. He was, uh, they called him the West Side Killer in L.A. And, uh, yeah, he killed her in Venice. I'll never forget that one. Did they get him eventually? Yes. Yes, they did. Was he death penalty? Yes, he's, he was death penalty. I don't know what transpired after that. So... The violence escalated, didn't it? And you started to go uh, collecting? I collect money for my brother. Uh, you know, good issue is um, there was a muffler shot. They owned Frank Sica. Our, at that time in the 70s, Frank Sica and Joe Sica were the representatives of the New York crime family in the Los Angeles area. And they ran the show. And my brother had Luigi's Pizza Parlor on Lancashire in Van Nuys, California. And uh, we, it was a family. I mean, we all knew that they were mob, but when, when something's mob, you don't say it's mob because you grow up with it and it's just part of your being. It's not a big thing. But uh, yeah, Frank and Joe would, would tell Louie, hey, send, send your brother. And I'd go do what I got to do and they bless me with uh, a lot of money. A lot of money for a kid. <laughs> You had an altercation on the streets with a guy you ran into later in the prison system, and this guy was trying to kill you. Didn't he shoot you? Yeah, he shot me. Could you give the whole story of that? No. 
Um, he shot you, and you didn't you chase him down after he shot you? Yeah. Could you describe that bit? No. No? Because <laughs> is there a statue of limitations on that stuff? Or? Yeah, yeah. Okay, gotcha. All right, and then you were also teaching boxing, um, was, but was that in the youth authority, was it? I had a program in prison, boxing program in prison in Tracy, and that's when we were fighting in Tracy. So they had, back in the 70s, the California Department of Corrections, I thought it was a great program. And I thought they should have never stopped it because it stopped the violence. Because what happened is if I have a problem with you, would say, okay, next month on the 1st, we're going to fight. So I'd see you running, you see me running, and for a month everybody's betting on who's going to win. And they would come to fight night at Tracy. They called it gladiator school. And you get in the ring, and uh, whoever won, won. So that went on for years. So the guy whose murder you were sentenced for, because you were sentenced, you can, you can explain what happened there, can't you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, uh, I served 40 years for it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Jose Luis Ramirez. I was introduced to him through Carlos Palomino, the welterweight champion of the world. He told me he could make me famous, and I believed it. I started doing fights. Uh, back then, it was they called them tough guy fights. And I started winning and making money. I had to keep my amateur status because I was still an amateur fighter. And if you accepted money, you could no longer keep your status. So I fought anywhere for money. And uh, I was told that he had spent the money that he was supposedly saving for me. I went to see him. He pulled a gun. We fought. The gun went off. Um, I was arrested. I pled guilty because I was guaranteed five years in the youth authority. In fact, he was shot in the shoulder. And with my luck, the gun bullet ricocheted through his body. He was shot with a, one of those Derringers that shoot a mini twenty two. Yeah. And I was told that because I was 18, 17, turning 18, that if I pled guilty, I'd be sentenced to five years in the California Youth Authority. I pled guilty to first-degree murder. I was sentenced to the Youth Authority not to exceed my 21st birthday. While in prison, I had a girlfriend that was living near the prison. She was scared of the area in Stockton, California. So I told her, go to, the, go to a pawn shop and buy a gun. And I put it in the mail, and they took that letter. And at that time, 1978, uh, the law, law would reflect they were trying juveniles as adults. That's when the law came out in the United States. They remanded me back to custody, back to the L.A. County Jail. The judge refused to withdraw the plea bargain. He said, you pled guilty to murder one, that's what I'm sentencing you to. He resentenced me to 25 to life. How did that feel? That's, that's, uh, well, you figure I was 24 months to going home. Now I've got 25 to life. So I, I went off in prison. I just, uh, there was nothing I wouldn't do in prison. I was a beast. I was a beast for many years. I was a beast up until the officer got raped. That's what changed my life. All right, let's, let's, let's stay on the early stuff for now. So, 18th Street Gang, what does that mean for the English public who are not familiar with all this American gang culture? 18th Street, what, what's that about? That? Yep. 
Explain to them what, what it means. 18th Street, 18th yeah. and Grand. We used to be called Clanton, Clanton Boys. And Were you a founder of this gang? I was a founder, co-founder with my, my, my big homie, Boxer, the big Boxer from 18th Street. Two Boxers. Yeah, I was baby Boxer and he was big Boxer. And he was your crime partner on the streets. Yeah, I was my he? crime partner. And uh, we started 18th. We were living on 18th Street. But see, the reason why our gang is the biggest gang, well, at least that's what it says online, we're the biggest gang in the United States. Presently? Presently. Wow. We are the, the biggest gang. Uh, because our gang, being Puerto Rican and Sicilian, Mexican gangs weren't accepting anybody. But because he was Salvadoranian and I was Puerto Rican and Sicilian, we were the only gang in L.A. that has blacks, Chinese, that's why our gang is, is so big. I'm still, I still love my gang. Hope you're enjoying this podcast. There's a word from our sponsor, Rocket Money. The other day, I had to cancel free Amazon Prime memberships. I had a personal on the UK, Amazon, US, Amazon company account, US, Amazon, UK, Amazon. Do you understand how hard it is to cancel these bloody things? That's why Rocket Money makes these things so much easier. Formerly known as Truebill. The app shows all your subscriptions in one place and cancels what you don't want for you. Rocket Money can even find subscriptions you didn't know you were paying for. Just like with me, with my four Amazon Prime memberships, you may find out you've been at least double charged for a subscription. To cancel a subscription, all you've got to do is press cancel and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Get rid of useless subscriptions with Rocket Money now. Go to rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Seriously, it could save you hundreds per year. That's rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Thank you for supporting our sponsor, Rocket Money. Links in the description box. Cheers. I'll always be boxer from 18th Street. I wear it on the back of my head with pride. And I shave it every day so people can see it when I walk in the room. That's my gang. That's where I'm from. What kind of stuff did you and Big Boxer get up to? There wasn't anything that we didn't do. Is there any stories you can tell the viewers about that's not too heavy? Well, you know, it's, it's the gang life in L.A. is every street corner. Every street corner is a different corner. So you have to walk where you, you have to watch everything you do in L.A. Living in East L.A., you don't go to the West Side. The West Side, you don't go to Compton. But, um... 18th Street has no problem anywhere. Wasn't there a funny story of how you met Big Boxer? Because didn't you guys fight in the beginning? Yeah, where you from? Uh, yeah, SS. How did you meet him then? Oh my God, I can't even remember. <laughs> it's been so long, brother. <laughs> it's been so long. But there was a dispute. Yeah, over the, yeah. Right. And then you beat him, didn't you? And he respected you. I beat him and we became, yeah, that was it. Yeah. <laughs> this is what happens when you get old. <laughs> so um, do you want to just leave it at here, here for now keep rolling you want to keep rolling yeah cool. okay okay alright so we'll go forward then to um, where you're in prison so what were your early years like in the youth authority just gangbang just violent gangbangs violent you know when you go to bed at night and you hear shh, shh, shh on the floor. And you know they're sharpening knives. And you don't know if it's coming for you. 
And when you have to live with that every day, it's um, it's unimaginable. I mean, to think being in your bathroom, a room as big as your bathroom, and there's 5,000 other guys in there on lockdown, and all you hear is nothing because it's so quiet because something's jumping off. And you hear the, sh- the sharpening of knives. And you see kites being passed under the door. It's, um, it's very strenuous. It's very taxing on one's soul. And to live like that for 40 years, it, it, I don't know how I did it. I really don't. I, I have to say the only reason, the first person I saw when I got out was Benny Yukitas. And I told him, if it wasn't for you, I'd be dead. What you taught me in the dojo, how you taught me to be a bad son of a bitch at 15, saved my life to this day. I mean, I sent you the video. <laughs> you recently got in a fight. Got in a fight over a parking space. Where are you from? First thing he said, where are you from? And he was 20-something. 22. And you kicked his ass. Beat him like a drum. <laughs> I hope, I hope you show that video. <laughs> do, you think, do you think we can include that video? It's a violation or... No. Yeah, yeah. All right, we're going to show you the video now, so stay tuned. And, man, you've still got those skills, haven't you? I'm 62 years old. I try to work out every day. Um, but I think it was just muscle memory. You know, it's it's... It's like when somebody says, watch out, and, you, and the dummy goes, huh? Or the guy that says, watch out, and he bobs underneath it, you know. I think it's, like I said, it was the training from Benny that kept me alive. It was the constant daily front ball kick, roundhouse kick, bob and weave, to, to be able to know it and feel it. So from our interviews with Mike Thompson and John Abbott, we know it was like Aryan Brotherhood, La M.A., yes. um, Black Girl Family, if you're a founder of 18th Street, which is multiracial, Emme. how do you fit into the mix in prison? Emme. Let Emme? Yeah. But didn't they have beefs with you in the beginning? Weren't they sweating you to try and pay them something? Yeah. At one time, they greenlighted 18th Street because we weren't paying rent. And um, they put a green light on everybody from 18th Street. And so you had to stay on your toes for a while. And then after a year... Members from my neighborhood became MS soldiers, and uh, that's what's made my neighbor my neighborhood strong. But yes, MS Sureño Southside S13 Sur, that's our uh, that's our moniker. That's who we are. So during that beef, did anyone come to you with a blade? No, I was affiliated with the M at the time because of my brother's connection. I got blessed in there by Big D Donald Garcia, or rest in peace. And uh, I had I never had problems. Uh, I was ordered to kill one of my own, and I told they wanted me to kill my homeboy Penguin. And so what I did was I told Penguin, "Hey, I gotta kill you, so lock it up." But uh, that's that's the life in there. And then you got the you got the Aryan Brotherhood. You got you and they're they're back in the Emma, and the BGF is black in the Northerners, so. It's a constant, but but now that I reflect upon it, Sean, and that's why I've tried to change this, to break it, is that it's more input by the guards and the system to make it continually happen because that's their job security. If I have you fighting that guy, you got to... Christmas. 
Christmas is the best for the guards. They throw a couple bullets over the fence. They lock the prison down. Now they get overtime while they're looking for the... And there's no bullets. They just did it so they could get overtime on Christmas, triple time. So we know from Abbott and Thompson about San Quentin, how violent that was. Was the youth authority, was that a gladiator school? Yes, YTS, youth training school. That's uh, YTS, Preston. Preston was the dungeon in Northern California. That's where they housed the baddest juveniles there were. Did you spend I, time in the dungeon? I, I spent a year in the dungeon. For I what? For stabbing, for a, a suspicion of stabbing someone in the chow hall. But um, What was conditions like in the dungeon? Just dreary and cold. It was built back in the 1800s. It's, it's called Preston Tamarack. And they put you down there and they just forget about you. Did you get a green bologna sandwich at least? You know, we didn't get that. We got what they call yard bird. It was a piece of chicken, but it had hair on it. So you had to pull the hair off the chicken and try to get some kind of... Ch- out of a whole chicken, you were happy... It, that it wasn't green and the bone wasn't green or red. Yeah, that that's some bad food, man. There's some there's some bad food in there. And I, I can't eat another top ramen. And if I see another top ramen, I'm going to kill somebody. <laughs> Did you get two meals a day? Um, two meals a day, a lunchbox, a box full of bologna that I gave to the cats. I threw it over the fence for the dogs and the cats because you couldn't eat it. And then at nighttime, you were happy if you got a warm meal. Yeah, it's, it's, it, was, it was very bad. And at this point then, if you're locked down in the dungeon, what was your daily routine? Um, just burpees. You were, I'd do burpees in the cell, I'd shadow box. I'd try to read anything I could get a hold of. You know, the guards would leave a newspaper a month old, and I'd, I'd read it ten times over just to, just to read it. But... Um, it was, you were on 23-hour lockdown. You came out an hour a day to shower, to use the phone. And then you were back into the next day. Never saw the moon. I tell people this. I never saw the moon for 30 years. How did the guards treat you in the youth authority? Then they treated me as boxer from 18th Street. They treated me very bad. And, um, but it was, I didn't know anything else. That's the thing. It was the culture. You know, it, like I say, everything in my life, Sean, reflects upon my life changing when that officer was raped. So when you ask me something, I could tell you the baddest son of a bitch I was. But I also tell you that once I saw that officer getting raped, I thought of my sister. I thought of another woman. And that changed my life. And that really turned the whole perspective for me into saying, hey, that's what they want me to be. That's who they're showing me to be. But I'm better than that. And that's why I say it took Sirhan Sirhan to tell me. Out of all these guys, you're the most intelligent, articulate one. Better yourself. You're going to get free. You're young. And I took those, I, I heed those words to this day. Did you discover the art skills that were used in tattooing during that incarceration, or was that from earlier? I always drew. I've, I've been drawing for, since I, I was a kid. So when I arrived in prison, I would do tattoo patterns for people, and I survived doing artwork making cards up for holidays to the inmates so they could send to their kids. Then I was contacted by Teen Angel magazine. I started becoming an artist for Teen Angel, doing covers and centerfolds. Um, artwork, was, artwork was a good thing till I got educated and found out there was money in law. 
and doing divorce packages and immigration packages. So the guys would be getting deported to Mexico and they didn't want to go. So I'd file a writ to the court telling that their life would be in jeopardy and using the constitutional law to substantiate why they should be given a 90-day hearing and not transferred out of the country. And for that, it would be $300. Yeah, we had a guy on called Jamie Morgan Kane who was doing a similar thing. And when he was getting deported, he, they, they were keeping him for so long, he started doing all these writs. And he was getting so many of these guys' writs approved. They were like, right, we're going to release you. We're just get rid of you. Yeah, 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 yeah. The warden called me to the office and said, how come every writ has your name on it? I was like, wow. <laughs> so how long were you in the youth authority? Um, I was in the Youth Authority from 1978 to when they took my YA number in 1984. 78 to 84. And in 1984, they sent me to Tracy, which they call Gladiator School. And uh, that's when I was uh, um, accused of a a prison murder. Uh, Another kid was killed in there, and I was was charged with murder. And what were the circumstances of that person getting killed? Where are you from? That thing again. Where are you from is... Anybody that's out there that knows what I'm saying is, yeah. where are you from in L.A., where are you from in California, across the pond, is a life and death. People are killed every day because if you answer it, it's called, did you squeak? If you squeak, that means you said, I'm from nowhere. Because you told me to Google something before we sat down today. You said, look at the deaths, the murders in L.A. County. And I, I Googled the Los Angeles, the homicide report, and this is for the present day, 747 people were killed in L.A. County in the past 12 months. Nine in the last week in L.A. where I live. As I was telling you, it's, 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 I can't sleep until I hear the helicopter or above my house. Uh, me and my wife, we, we, we've, it's a running joke now when there's gunfire. and She says, that's an AK, and I go, no, that's a thirty-eight. So that's how common it is. Just last night, or night before I left, a husband and wife were sitting in their car and they got shot. Kid at the liquor store on his bike, a pizza delivery kid, they shot him for his necklace and it wasn't even gold. And you and helped it, with the funeral on that one, didn't it, you? I paid for his, his cremation. But it, that's why I, I believe something has to change and that's why I'm here. That's why I came, Sean. I didn't come here to tell my story as a bravado. I came here to make a difference, you know. Because if people reach out who've watched this video, you're willing to travel anywhere in the world, aren't you, to speak to young people? Got to. I mean, you got to. I mean, if they're not going to listen to their parents, maybe they'll listen to Joey. Because if you go to prison, you're going to shine my shoes, wash my clothes, and you ain't going to like it. And that's reality. And you, you, you know, brother, if it, I'm only here because of the time you did. If you, if you were a man there and what you're doing and you didn't have the lineage that you have, then you know what I'm telling you is right. You know I'm telling you is right. The saddest thing at night was hearing kids scream because they put them in with a grown man and the kids fucking them. So that's why I've put my life to helping kids. That's why I said YouTube the Joe Torrey story. YouTube it. See the kids that I've helped. That's what it's about. No kid should have to go to prison and serve life. You know, everybody's a gangster till a gangster walks in the room. I always tell people that, Sean. Gangster is me standing over your bed at 3 o'clock in the morning 
eating chicken wings out of your refrigerator talking about where you're from. Where you're from is life and death in L.A. You say the wrong thing, you're a dead man. And it's factual and it's true. 790 murders will tell you that. So in L.A., because California's next to Arizona, you were familiar with the jail I was at then, oh, Sheriff Joe Arpaio. Very what are your thoughts on him? Come on. The man should have been put underneath the prison he was running. You know, when you go after people by the, the shade of their skin, get every Mexican, and then you get found guilty, and it takes Donald fuck you Trump. It takes Donald Trump to pardon him. That, 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 speaks, that speaks volumes. You just grown men in pink? Come on. He was a powerful guy. He was on George Bush's steering committee. Yeah, well, George Bush said there was no climate control problem either, huh? <laughs> so, L.A. presently then, do you think it's just getting more and more out of control with these murders? Since, the, since COVID, I, and I called it. I told my wife during COVID, I said, you know what? Because the word came out from prison. The Emmett had sent word that nothing was to happen during COVID. Everything ceased to exist. But after COVID, it's, it's, look what's happening in Hollywood. People are getting robbed for their Rolexes and killed it's every day. They just shot a kid last night on Hollywood Boulevard for his Rolex. So that's why I told my wife, I said, as soon as this, this, this COVID's over... Everybody's buck wild. Everybody's shooting and killing in L.A. I feel... When I got off the plane today in England, I breathed such a sigh. I don't have to worry about dying tonight. And that's a good feeling. It's got to be relaxing for you. Oh, I, I, I wish I could stay here and never go back. I mean, how, how do you feel your story is going to influence the young people then? I think it's going to take somebody who sees the story to believe in what I'm saying and apply it to getting me on a tour. I always had a dream since I've been in prison. While I was in New Mexico State Prison, I, uh, I would go to the warden's office and they would split screen me with the schools in Harlem. And I would speak to the kids and they were just enthralled. They just wanted to know so much more about it. Because kids aren't dumb. They're not going to listen to their parents. They're not going to listen to this guy or that guy. They're going to listen to somebody that was there. And I always had a dream. And it, it, I'll keep the dream. It's standing in front of a group of children and saying, let me tell you a story. You know, you think you're tough. And you don't know what tough is. Tough is coming out of your cell and seeing four guys with knives and saying, oh, shit. You know, I had a plate put in my head, stabbed in the neck. I wear this to cover the stab wound in my neck. You know, that, that's the life that I chose. And no children should choose that life. So I don't think it would be the children that see this. I don't. I think it will be someone who has the power to put me out there on a 300-city tour, hitting every elementary and high school, going to colleges, symposiums, and telling people the story. We, we don't have enough crusaders out there, Sean. Think about it. Who's out there? Not many. Who's out there? Think about that for a moment. We have everybody in every field doing something. Who's minding the children today? I grew up in an era where if you weren't home when the, when the street light went off, 
When's the last time kids sat down with their family for dinner? That doesn't happen anymore. How was your day? How was now everybody's hustling and bustling? We've lost the fiber and the fabric of our life. So those injuries you sustained were those before 1984 or after? I got hit in uh, the head in 1986 because I saved the law officer's life, and I went through the turnstile, and the the guy hit me with a curling bar, and it put a plate in my head. That when I go th- when I went through the Hospital TSA, the airport, they pulled me over because I had to tell them I had the plate in my head and the bullets in my my leg. All right, so we're going to get to those stories because right now we're we're still in the 78 to 84. You said you went to Tracy. I went to Gladiator School, yes. What year was that, 84? 84. What was it like arriving there? Well, it was you weren't a kid anymore. You were in prison with grown folk, but you were there as a youth authority incorrigible. So I was 23 at the time, and I was put in a cell block with, with Emmett, Aryan Brotherhood, with Vagos and Chainsaw from the Vagos. And, and you know, I mean, I could go on and on with, with righteous killers. And uh, they sent me on kamikazes because I was a youth authority, and they figured they couldn't do nothing to me, so I was the, the guy they sent. You know. Was that before or after the resentencing? Before. Before. Yeah. What year was the resentencing? 86. Okay, so the two years then from 84 to 86. I was in Tracy. What happened to you during those years? I was a killer. In the prison system? Yes. And then you got classified as incorrigible. They classified me as incorrigible, sent me back to court. And that's when they resentenced me to 25 to life. Okay, take us through the hearing for that. They returned me back to court and the judge said, I'm not going to burden the taxpayers. You pled guilty to it and that's what I'm resentencing you to. We appealed it. I appealed it all the way up into the United States Supreme Court. And in 1993, it was denied. And that's when I hired one of the greatest attorneys in my family. My, my mother and father went to their graves spending hundreds of thousands of dollars trying to get me out. We had Melvin Belli as an attorney, one of the great attorney mind, legal minds. And uh, I said, this, this is wrong. And I put myself in the law library. And I found a way to get out. And that was the, the change. That was the change in my life. All right, so we're just going to go over a bit of where you got resentenced then. I'm just going to read a bit from the book. You were scheduled for a parole hearing in 1982. You expected to go home. You've been working out hard. You were 165 pounds. I was supposed to go right back into boxing. Everybody in the boxing community knew that I was going to go to prison, but I was going to come out and do it. Because the longest they could hold me was till I was 25. Your jogging partner back then was the Onion Field murderer. Yeah, that was my boy, man. Who was he? He's the guy, the Onion Field murderer. Google it. Onion Field murderer. He killed those people out in Bakersfield. A few days before the parole board hearing, you felt the need to carry a knife? Why was that? Always did. So, Joey, we were talking about the Mexican Mafia, La M.A. sweating 18th Street. But you know some of the OGs from M.A., such as Pegleg? Yeah, Joe Morgan, the founder 
of the MN. It was him and Big D. But people didn't know it, and maybe they'll not know it until now, but the record will reflect, and anybody could Google it. He's from Croatia. Is is I remember sending mail out through my name because they were watching his mail, and it was to Liverpool. He's from Croatia. You go, no way that the head of the Mexican mafia was from Croatia. I was about to say that. And that's why everybody says, well, you were Puerto Rican. How did you associate with the Yemen? How? Well, because I grew up there, but I, I was Puerto Rican and Sicilian. I can just see him going crazy in the comments now saying, this Joey guy saying the head of the MA was Croatian. So I'm fact-checking this now on Wikipedia. The youngest of four siblings, Morgan was born on April 10, 1929 in San Pedro, California to Croatian immigrants. Kira and Grgo, a truck driver who was an ethnic Croat from Lejewski. Shortly after his birth, his father naturalized as a U.S. citizen, anglicizing the family names of Morgan due to anti-immigrant and anti-Slavic sentiments at the time. In 1929, the same year Morgan was born, the U.S. passed immigration laws limiting immigration from the Balkans. It's believed that more than half of the Croatian population at the time was deported from the nation. Morgan grew up in primarily Mexican and Croatian neighborhood in San Pedro, Later, he was raised by his mother in a Mexican neighborhood in Boyle Heights. In the late 1930s, he joined the Ford Maravilla Street Gang, one of the oldest gangs in L.A. And rose to be the head and the founder of the Mexican Mafia, and he wasn't even Mexican. I go, how the fuck did Joe Morgan? No, he's Mexican. No, he's not. I was with him in Corcoran right before he died. In fact, me and Michael Thompson and, and Sirhan... I I'll, I'll forget it. I won't forget it like like it was yesterday that uh, I sent over cigarettes and some food because he was in the hospice unit at Corcoran, and that's where he died. He died there in Corcoran while we were there. But he was a good man. I mean, he's he's a legend. But again, he's not Mexican. <laughs> so as you're approaching then this resentencing. You stayed up the night before the hearing with your legal folder, letters of support, and new marriage certificates. You had no family left. Your brother Luigi was in prison. The Gambinos, Genovese's, Bananos, they were losing power. They're, they're, at that time, yes. I was there with Jimmy McElroy. Um, can, can we stop for a second, please? I'm sorry, yeah, brother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I, I just... I want to tell you something. Mm-hmm. So, Joey, another character you're going to talk about is James McElroy, Jimmy McElroy. And I'm going to, just to give this more certification, I'm just going to read his wiki page first so the viewers know that this is legit because all these stories are just so insane. So Jimmy McElroy was an Irish-American mobster and racketeer from Manhattan, New York, who was an enforcer for the Westies, an organisation that operated out of Hell's Kitchen. Born in 45 in Hell's Kitchen, Manhattan area, he played hockey with many future Westies-aligned criminals at Hell's Kitchen Park and boxed at Boys and Girls Clubs of America with Eddie Kumiski and started burglarizing commercial buildings in the Lower East Side Manhattan and cargo from warehouses. He rose through the ranks for counterfeiting, extortion and murder during the 70s and 80s. A former boxer-turned-dealer, he was known for being the driver of the infamous Meat Wagon a large van used by the mob to transport dismembered body parts. That's Jimmy. 
Did you know about the meat wagon? I'm born and raised. Everybody knew about Jimmy and the meat wagon. I, 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 he died in my arms. He died in my arms in uh, Mule Creek State Prison. Um, I just got back from uh, being sentenced to life again. The second life sentence I received in 2002, if you recall. And yeah, I was there with him and he was just maybe 100 pounds. And I said, what's wrong with you? And, and he, he died of uh, cirrhosis. Mm. He died of cirrhosis. Great guy. I mean, I, I, I go back with him in the 70s. I go back with him to uh, Little Italy. That's where I met Chacha in Little Italy through Jimmy. At that time, Jimmy was working for Bolger, for Whitey. But he was doing the hits for, for the Gambinos. And see, that's what happened. The family wouldn't use their own. They would go to the Westies. But yeah, Jimmy Mack was a good guy. He showed me my uppercut. He showed me my uppercut. He'd say, pretend you're going to throw an uppercut and just catch him with the elbow. Jimmy was a good man. I, I miss him very dearly. I hope, he would have, I hope he would have been out when I got out. That's why I contacted you, to see Michael, because I was so happy Michael got out. But, uh, yeah, Jimmy Mack was a, a good guy, but he was a killer. He was, he was the meat wagon man. I mean, everybody on the inside would say, hey, call Jimmy, get the wagon. But, you know, you tell people this, right? And then you read it. You tell people this without the wiki page and people think you're just blowing smoke. Yeah, I know. Huh? Yeah, but this is what it was like. And there's not many left from that generation to tell these stories, is there? No. That's and I was, I was a baby, that's why. See, that's the thing. I was born in 60. I grew up with these guys. When I was 16, 17, they were 25, 30 years old. But because I boxed and because Jimmy boxed, everybody that I associated with the mob were fighters. Think about it. Jimmy the Weasel was a boxer. Jimmy Mack was a boxer. There's just so many that I could just go down the line. And when you have that boxer's mentality, it just... It, it was years of camaraderie talking about fights, talking about life in general, but knowing that they were killers. I mean, this Jimmy the Weezy story is particularly fascinating because of the two Tonys that were whacked. And when did you first meet Jimmy the Weasel? In 73. And how old were you then? 13. What, what brought you together? Uh, Frank Sica. Uh, he, at that time, he owned a restaurant on San Fernando Road called Sir Sico's Restaurant. It was Frank and Joe Sica. No, because I grew up with these guys. These guys, Frank was like my, my uncle. And, but you knew that he, don't, he was a killer. Frank Sika and Joe Sika, the Sika brothers, they ruled the fucking L.A., man. They ruled L.A. How'd you spell Sika? S-I-C-A. When we wake up in the morning, we get out of bed, and we start our day with Coro Snacks. Coro is a healthy snacks brand focusing on bringing additive-free natural ingredients to the customer's with fair prices in bulk packaging. They have everything from nut butters to free from baking ingredients to cooking essentials and, of course, the snacks. <laughs> it doesn't get healthier than this because all those other snacks have refined sugars, colors, preservatives, and additives. Koros snacks have none of that. Oh, 
can't wait. So I'm going to go for the bioenergy ball today. Ooh, salty pistachio. I've got a little uh, chocolate bar here. I think. Oh, the coconut chocolate bar. Mmm. Oh, that's good. Mm. Want to try it? Ooh. <laughs> so what makes Coro special in comparison to others? Coro avoids using sulfur, refined sugars, preservatives, colours and other additives. For a 5% discount on Coro's products, use the code TRUECRIME with no space in between true and crime. The link to Coro's online shop is in the description box on YouTube. Thanks for supporting our sponsor. They ruled L.A. When I tell you ruled L.A., they, would, they had money. Everybody paid these guys. If you had a car wash, you paid them. If you had a doctor's office, you paid them. It would have come up. Um, yeah. Do you want to say that to the camera? Hold on a sec. Let's get it back on. But don't, did you find them? Yeah, got them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We good? Yeah. So in the story of the weasel, then, another character is Joe Seeker. I'm just going to read a bit from Wikipedia here was a New Jersey mobster involved in armed robbery, murder for hire, extortion and narcotics distribution. He mentored many West Coast mobsters, including Mike Rizzitello, yeah, Rizzitello. Anthony the Animal Fiato, yeah, Christopher Chris Petty was his longtime partner in LA, and San Diego Rackets. So how does Sika fit into the story? My brother worked for Frank Sika and Joe Sika. They owned... Uh, Sir Seco's restaurant on San Fernando Road. And everybody in L.A. knew that everything went through the Sicas. And my brother was, at that time, he had Luigi's Pizza Parlor, and he was an enforcer for the Sicas. I was 13, 14, boxing, and um, I've always been the same way I am now. Go get him. And I remember Frank telling my brother Luigi that Jimmy is getting out on such and such a date from Chino. And I remember it so well because it was 73. I had just started the Golden Gloves. And so we drove out to Chino and picked up Jimmy when he got out. And we went up north to Hayward where we were at Ray Giarusso's. At that time, Bill Bonanno had just opened up a car dealership in Fresno. So that's how my relationship with Jimmy began and when he knew I was into boxing, he was an ex-fighter. So he would spar and he'd slap me around and they'd pay me to just stand outside and watch the cars and if the feds drove up to come whistle. And But yeah, Jimmy, the weasel was a good guy. I liked the weasel. He did what he did. They were going to whack him. So he got off on them before they whacked him. Which ties into some of the stories we told this channel about... Charlie Bats Battaglia and Two Tonys, the guy I wrote his life story, the mafia philosopher. And how does Bats Battaglia fit into this then? When they killed him in the, the telephone booth, San Diego. The Two Tonys? Yeah. So what had the Two Tonys done to get the green light on them to be murdered? Uh, I can't say. Because the way it was told to us by my friend was that they were, uh, they'd robbed the wrong places... And the order came down from the top. Yeah, I, I, just, I just... And then, but I think it was Bat, wasn't it? Wasn't um, Bat's working under the weasel on that whack? I can't say. Okay, gotcha. All right, from what I know then, from, from not what Joey's saying, Bat's was working under the weasel, 
And they went in the car with him and Weasel made sure Bats put some slugs in him because it was his first whack. But then Bats went on to become a prolific killer in his own right, left stiffs from coast to coast and never got caught from any of it. Yeah, so, um, but then the Bananos, they lost their power, didn't they? They got run out of New York. That, that faction did. They came out of here. They were in Fresno. Yeah, we're open up a, yeah and opened yeah. up a car, a car dealership. And the other brother retired to a freaking uh, Tucson or Arizona. Yeah. So Joe Senior was in was one of my neighbors in in Sinvacus, Tucson. Brother, I remember like it was yesterday. Yeah. The, the year was seventy four, and we were in Ray Giarrusso had a a salvage yard in Hayward, California, and it was Jimmy, all his boys, my brother Louis, Ray Giarrusso, Bill Bonanno. And Joe Bonanno. Sounds like a scene out of The Godfather. And we're all in the salvage yard talking shit to each other. And they're all saying, shut up, I'll send, I'll send Joey after you. But <laughs> when you're growing up with those people at the time and you're a kid, you, you know, it, it, was living a, it was living the life. You know, there was nothing to worry about money. Everybody had money. We were in Vegas every weekend. Frank Sika was the shot caller and he was our boy. You know, that, that was the life. But I, always, I will always respect Bill Bonanno. I will always respect the Bonanno family. I don't care what anybody wants to say about them. They made their reputation. They'll go down in history. Yeah, because there's two sides, isn't there? Some people say that with the old man writing that book, it brought a lot of heat on the mafia and it changed things. Um, some people say, you know, he was the longest standing head of the mafia commission. Exactly. And he never got whacked. He, he managed to be diplomatic and get away with a lot and, and die in his, uh, from natural causes in his, in his old age, which is quite an incredible thing to achieve for someone who's been in that position. Every year that passes for me, I'm, I never thought I'd see 62. What does that tell you? At, at 15, I never thought I'd see 21. At 21... I ne- thought I'd never see a day. I never thought I'd be out of prison. Think about that. I'm sentenced to life. I'm not. I can't go to the pro board till 2043. Imagine that, my friend. So, what, how did these characters dress then? The weasel and them. What was it? The old pinky rings. And oh the- yeah, it came more special. They would have the polyester shirts. They had the pinky rings, and they showed me that when you get your money, you wrap it up with a with a, the rubber band this way. <laughs> and, and the way to really do it is you go to the lettuce section, and in the lettuce, they have the blue rubber bands, and they don't break, so you can rack up to 5,000 in them. <laughs> so they'd have their money here, they'd have their pinkies, and they'd have their Italian stogies. Yeah, that was... And my mom used to make pasta and would sit there in the house, and there'd be a Ford LTD in the front with two cops in the back, FBI p- taking pictures, and yeah, that was that was my my brother Luigi was something else, man. My brother Luigi was was something else. He was uh, he came up under Jimmy. He came up under Bats. I remember stories about Bats. I mean, Bats was, as you say, a prolific killer. But if you saw him, you wouldn't think so. Same thing with Jimmy. You didn't think that old. You didn't think Jimmy was a killer. But, you know, but it's changed now. There's no more. It's all done. It's all over with. Sadly, it's all over, you know? Yeah, it's, it's cartels and yeah. over. Now they kill the kids. They kill everybody. You know, back then you had a, you had a line of respect. You didn't kill women or kids, you know? Yeah, yeah. So we, we were just leading up to the part then where you were 
coming up to your resentencing. Let me get this back up. Close it. Just to recap then, so Joey's been sentenced to five years, thinks he's getting out, shows up with his paperwork, he enters the parole board room, there's three board members, an older Latino who smiled at you, an older white man, and a woman with a sour face, and how how did it progress from there? The, the woman said, I've read your file and I too, I'm from Compton. I know all about 18th Street thugs. Just because you are an athlete, do not think you will get treated any different on your incorrigible butt. Do you remember that day? Yes, I do. It's just, you said it all right there. I mean, that, that's, that was it. She continued, the new law that has taken effect this year is applicable to you. Under 1170D of the penal code. and C, an inmate who is found to be incorrigible will be found unsuitable for the youth authority and returned to court for sentencing. You, Mr. Tory, are incorrigible. Did, you know, did you know what was coming at that point? Yes, I knew it was coming. Because I was sitting in Tracy, which was for grown people, and I was a juvenile. And I knew it was coming, but I didn't care. I didn't care. I didn't care because in my immature mind, I thought, <laughs> I have 18 months left. All the judge could do is sentence me to 18 months. I ponder that, Sean. Think of that. I'm sentenced to my 25th birthday. At the time, 1982, I'm 22. So the worst the judge could do with, time, with good time and work time, it sentenced me to 18 months. So I was like, fuck you. Fuck you and the board. I don't care. And I was returned to court. Went in there thinking I was higher and mighty. And uh, rude awakening. When the judge says, no, you pled guilty to murder one. That's what I'm resentencing you to. 25 to life. And I stood there for the next 40 motherfucking years. Wow. Which is a huge part of this story that we're going to get to about the fight to overturn that. And Joey said, hell no, buddy, I have a plea agreement, and now they want to resentence me, yeah. and I will not plea again. And what was your lawyer doing at this point? Jack shit? Yeah. Yeah, it, just, it hurts to even think about it. It was, it was a hell of a time. Because I thought I was going to continue my career, you know. I, that time I was the Golden Glove champ, NEBF champ, and I was in jail. But I had so many people that thought I'd be out. So many people counting on me. I was counting on myself. I would have got out. If I would have gone to prison with that, that deal they made, plead guilty for YA, and just gone to YA and been a good guy, I would have been out. But, you know, you hear their stories, and it's such a... A tale, a, a, a facade. Well, if you mind your business and go to prison and you mind your business, you could... No, you can't. Not if you're in a gang. Not if you're a gang member. You know, I, I, to, to this day, I know a lot of kids that go in there for GTA 2, 3, and 4, and they're ordered to kill somebody, and they're doing life, and they're 18 years old, and they think it's funny... Until they get 30, 40, 50. Until you look in that mirror and you see I'm not 18 anymore. You know, it reminds me of, of a kid 
that uh, I gotta you gotta stop. So Joey, there was a song by Tower Power, Rick Stevens, that meant a lot to you. Why? Why did it mean so much to you? He's just a good guy. I mean, I grew up with him in prison with Jimmy Mack. Isn't that something? A mobster from Manhattan and the singer of Tower of Power? Tell me that ain't a hell of a crew. Rick Stevens was salt of the earth, man. Uh, he was the founder of Tower of Power, one of the biggest bands in the world. And he did a song called You're Still a Young Man. And every year for my birthday, my 18th, 20th, 25, 30, 35, 40, every year for 40 fucking years, I sang You're Still a Young Man in front of my mirror. And he would sing it to me on the yard because wow. he was in there with me doing life. Yeah. He got busted in 77. I mean... I can confirm this from the New York Times. Rick Stevens, funk soul singer convicted of murder, died at 77. And what he'd done was he was convicted of killing three men in a drug-addicted haze and served 36 years in prison. He got out in California. He died when he was 77 from liver cancer. Yeah, we some we all got that liver cancer thing. I, I wonder if it was in the water, but um, no. Rick was a phenomenal singer. You know, he'd serenade me on my birthday because I used to tell him. You know, I asked him. That's the man I asked. I said every time we go to visiting, there'd be this little black girl, and she. I loved her. Up. She was five years old, and I'd see her every Saturday. Well, we parted after I saved the officer's life, and they sent me out of state. I didn't see him for. 20 years and when I got back to Mule Creek when they sentenced me to life again in 2002 he was there at Mule Creek with me and with Jimmy Mac they were both dying and they wouldn't admit it but they knew they were dying and I said hey so how's how's Karen said Joey she's a mother has three kids she's a grandmother now that little five-year-old girl so that's why it's just it's you know my life has my life has gone so full circle but I think of I think of Rick Stevens so much I ask everybody go to YouTube and do Rick Stevens and the tribute to him and his story is on there that's somebody you should have interviewed but yeah it was it was something else to see that crew Jimmy Mack the Manhattan the meat wagon killer Rick Stevens and Joey Torres. Wow. A hell of a combination, huh? Wow. <laughs> Don't forget the onion field killer, too. Who? The onion field killer, my, oh, you had to my, jog, you're my jogging, jogging bar, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, he just killed all these people in Bakersfield. But... Oh, my God. Yes. Yeah, all right, so this first section then that we're doing about your life story, uh, we're at the point where the judge is now resentencing you and I'm just going to read from the court document so this is all legit Mr. Tory I'm not going to allow you to withdraw your plea agreement and burden the taxpayers of this state with a long drawn out trial you pled guilty to 187 murder and in about five minutes that's what you will be sentenced to numerous fights in youth authority and trying to purchase a gun while in custody bad places are for bad people and you're without a doubt bad people incorrigible is right your sentence is just the beginning as the Briggs Initiative has just passed on November of 1982, 
which protects minors, not adults or gangsters like you. You should not have been sentenced to the YA. I'm not going to correct that wrong. No, I am going to correct that wrong. You should not handle a three to five year deal. And now you are back. He banged his gavel and asked you to stand before he continued. And he said, I hereby sentence you to 25 years to life in the California Department of Corrections. I will give you credit for 822 days that you served in the youth authority. Absolutely mind-blowing. But there's a bit of a backstory there about, you know, because they've misinterpreted this thing about the gun, isn't it? You wrote home to a female... Was it, it might have been your wife at the time, was it? It was a girlfriend. She girlfriend from telling LA. her she needed to get a gun to protect yeah, herself. Put it in the mail, put a stamp on it. Didn't circumvent the mail system. I could have told her in visiting when she visited me that weekend. But I always seem to forget things I'm supposed to do. So I have to write things down. Like I write stuff down so I remember. And I just wrote her and said, you know, buy a weapon. You could go to a pawn shop and get it cheap. They used that. And... um that was my first twenty-five to life. You have, don't forget, I was sentenced twice to twenty-five to life. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna get to that bit, and then he says, "Do you understand that punishment, that penalty?" After reading a bunch of stuff, you said, "Yes, sir," and you had the feeling then of your knees buckling. Yeah, yeah, you know, I was gonna start. I was gonna continue my boxing, but to be to be to you know. I, I have to be honest with myself. I have to be honest with life in general. You know, if I would have kept my mouth shut, not banged, not been the where you from guy, you know, I, I caused a lot of my own grief. That's why I want to change and try to send the word to others that are doing the same thing I'm doing. You know, you fuck up once, you'll fuck up twice. And I kept fucking up because I was boxing from 18th Street. I feared nothing. I feared no one. But I feared that gavel when it hit, and it said 25 to life. My knees, like I got hit with a left hook right on the button, and I couldn't even move. Time seemed to stay. The clock seemed to freeze. It's just like life stood still for that moment. And uh, I was remanded now, not to juvenile, and I was sent straight to Chino. And because of my gang affiliation, I was put on lockdown. I did an indeterminate shoot term for three years. We'll get to that. So as your knees are buckling, your lawyer's telling you this is double jeopardy and it's, gonna be, it's, it's, it's not going to stand. You'll get it on appeal. Was that realistic or did you think this guy's just blowing smoke by now? Well, I thought common sense would be how can you have somebody plead guilty for five years and then if I did try... This is what I thought, Sean. I thought if I did try to circumvent the mail and request a weapon, let's just say I did. That only that stipulation only carries six months for attempting. You didn't do it. You're telling somebody. That's, that's not even a crime. But because of the new Briggs ascent, see, they had just passed the law in 82 because so many juveniles were committing violent crimes in L.A. County. So when that law passed effect, that meant they could bring me back at any time. And that's what they chose to do by using that thread to bring me back. Did you eat your breakfast the next day? <laughs> so from then on, um, there was an old timer sweeping the floor in front of your cell, asked if you remembered him from the Main Street gym. Oh, and then, and then a green light got put on the 18th Street gang, but for the MA. I took that guy out in the gym. Yeah. 
Yeah, they sent Chinate from Clanton to kill me. And um, I took out, I took out that sentence on his ass. He paid for what that judge did. And uh, yeah, that was, that was, I feel if I could go tell him I'm sorry, I would, because I beat him. I had him grabbing the bed underneath the bed. I turned the bed over to beat him. And after that, you ran into Gypsy? Yeah. Who was Gypsy? The president of the Hells Angels. And how was he associated with your family? I don't want to go into it. Okay, gotcha. So you and him form an alliance then? Yeah. Yeah. I started taking care of business. You know, the honest way to put it is if... If you wanted somebody taken care of, you gave me a call. That was that guy. You know, and, and I, I'm embarrassed and ashamed of it. But at that time, it was either you did that or you were the victim. You know, I don't know how to articulate it in any other way that comes out that it doesn't sound facetious. It's raw survival. But it's survival. If you either kill or you be killed. And anybody that thinks different does not understand how it is. It's, that's it. There's no other way. You can't run. You can't get in your car. You can't go nowhere. You can't tell nobody. You can't tell the cops. You can't tell your homies because they might want you to kill your homies. So you're a man. You're an island on your own. And the only thing that kept me alive is I knew how to kick ass. If it wouldn't have been for me not knowing how to fight, I would have been dead years ago. Years ago. That's why I tell you the first thing I did when I got out was went to the dojo and told Benny, <laughs> you know. Thanks for saving your life. Yeah. So in the, in the immediate days after then, you were watching a fight on the TV and an older prisoner come along and change the channel. Yeah. And then it didn't end up very well for him, did it? No. But, you know, it is what it is. Yeah, we got to talk about all the bad stuff, huh? We've got to go over everything. How about everything? some good stuff? We've got to go over everything uh, in how detail. How about the redemption, baby? How about the redemption, champ? We're going to get to that section because it's such a long... Me, me, I'm feeling bad. I'm, feeling, I'm mad at me for being that guy. <laughs> I'm like, I did this, you know. But, but it was so... You know, you have to understand, you, you're, you're a juvenile, and you got people like Jimmy the Weasel, McElroy, Bats, Luigi, Frank Seeker, Joe Seeker, Cha-Cha. You got everybody loving you. Because you're a fucking killer. You're a kick-ass son of a bitch kid. And they send me with pride and happiness. Like like, like it's a thing to do. And I'm eating it up because I figure if I do this, they'll love me more. So that's, you know, I could be brutally honest with you right now and tell you that's... I don't, I don't think I've ever said this. Or, you know, I, I don't think I've ever even felt this. Feeling of belonging and love. Yeah. So, and it's what everyone's looking for, isn't it? Yeah. 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 So we, we've done about two hours, I think, today. Do you want to hold off until tomorrow for the rest? Yeah. It's almost two o'clock. Yeah, I'm good. That was absolutely fantastic. Joey, thank you. So Gadfly Press is hugely proud to announce the publication of Killing Escobar and Soldier Stories by Peter McAleese. If you've not seen our podcast we've done with Peter, check it out. And the book is now available worldwide on Amazon in all formats. And Peter was hired 
out of Scotland, mercenary by the Cali cartel to assassinate Pablo Escobar, one of the most famous gangsters in the history of the world. The mission is all detailed in the book, as well as Peter's many soldier stories from various countries and continents of the world. So, mind-blowing, gripping, as seen on BBC TV. This is the book, the story that Killing Escobar is based on, Peter McAleese's testimony. The link will be in the description box below the video, available worldwide on Amazon. Cheers.